Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Maybe that's the trouble if I just... Sometimes I think if I just shut up or how, how well I could... I've, for instance, been telling people that I think really for the art of the film that uh, sound is an aesthetic error and that uh, may be so severe a one that even within 20 years, uh, if people have a concept of film as art in 20 years that's worth anything, they, they might, might be a general assumption that all the pursuit of, uh, by uh, artists of the medium to put sound on a film was really um, a blind alley. <sighs> What's wrong, Bart? <laughs> oh, I this this episode has just been looming over me like a death sentence that's all is it because i forced you to watch like 20 stan brackage movies <laughs> it's not i'm not even i don't hate stan brackage i didn't i got a, plenty out of watching these 20 or so films that, for this episode but i do not know how i'm going to talk about these things it's hard actually but let's let's try anyway so for this episode, we're talking about Stan Brakhage, king of ex- experimental film. He's probably the most important name in American experimental film, you know, post twenties experimental film. I don't know. Do you have a Do you have a good way into into talking about this guy, Jenna? We said at the beginning of the year that we were going to expand our horizons and dive into some waters that we have previously avoided. And I actually think that it's really hard to talk about 1960s film without hitting all of these experimental short films. And yeah, Brackage seemed like the best start for it. I mean, neither of us are experimental film bros, right? You're not, I mean, you've probably seen more than I have, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I in film, film classes, all, yeah. all sorts of brackage and, and all other people get shown. And, you know, when you have a professor there to guide you through it, you can get a bit out of it. And I don't, I, I have nothing against this stuff. It's just not how I'm oriented. I'm I'm a narrative guy, and, and you're a narrative guy too. So to dive into all of this film material that uh, is, is basically completely non-narrative, a lot of it is completely abstract he was often filming his family so it's it's figurative in a lot of ways and you can make out what the images are of in in most cases with brackage although well i'll say about half of the the stuff that we watch for him but yeah i i'm it's it's mainly that i'm just not oriented this way and that's why it's been weighing on me that we we have to talk about this stuff but I don't really know how to. I didn't really know how to even approach this because I hadn't had any film classes about this. Uh, I I have avoided this entire world because, as you said, I am definitely not the the target audience. Uh, I I appreciate it, too. I I think it's interesting, but this is the first time I really sat down and watched, what was it, like five hours worth (laughs) our list of of movies that we watched for this episode, uh, which isn't even that long, but it, it sure felt long when Stan Brackage also does not have audio for the vast majority of his movies. I definitely want to talk about some themes of his. And yeah, filming his family is a big part of that. Well, you know, you you got some biographical information to to start us off with. Let's let's start at the beginning. 
Well, Stan Brackage was an orphan who was adopted by uh, this couple that uh, didn't have a happy marriage. His mom had affairs and his dad embraced his homosexuality. And uh, so Stan didn't have the, uh, the typical childhood. He uh, ended up going to college and not really taking to it. He wanted to do something creative and... Uh, really thought he was going to go into writing of some sort. He does have a way with words. He's great at talking about his own films and himself and other people's films. And, uh, you know, he's very he's very literate, considering that his films are mostly silent. There's almost nothing verbal about them. You'll occasionally see some writing in the films of his. But, yeah, for somebody who is so verbal it seems uh, sort of an odd choice or probably an unexpected choice for him to go into this type of experimental filmmaking where uh, it's, it's non-verbal. It's sort of creating his own language in film to express whatever it is he's trying to express. He hooked up with, uh, with some people in San Francisco and uh, he made a film realized that, uh, oh yeah, this is the direction I want to go with my life, but he wasn't really drawn to commercial projects, even though he had various jobs in the industry just, uh, you know, to get his get his hands in. He went back to school and, and studied film, but realized even even studying film was not exactly what, uh, what he wanted for himself, and he just uh, sort of took off on his own and, and started making films. His, the first film that he got attention for uh, in the mid-50s was Anticipation of the Night. You know, he had was in a relationship that had just uh, self-destructed, and, uh, you know, he's creating this film from scratch, you know, this, you know, inventing all his own rules for film, and he was at his wit's end, and he was, he was going to film his own suicide to put, to, to be added to the end of this film. But uh, fortunately, he met Jane, who he later married, and she became, uh, she, she's featured in, in many of his films, often, often giving birth. Um, that's the, you, you see her lying, lying on her back uh, with, uh, with her legs spread wide for, in, in a number of his films. Um, but uh, but yeah, he didn't end up killing himself, and uh, he started to get attention for this, you know, what he did end up producing, Anticipation of the Night. Uh, Amos Vogel, who ran uh, Cinema 16. No relation. No relation, yeah. Um, this New York collective of uh, experimental filmmakers, you know, and, and they would show things by Maya Darren. Brackage actually lived in, in Maya Darren's apartment for a while. Um, she's... You know, one of one of the most well-known experimental filmmakers, Meshes of the Afternoon from the 40s, is you know, crucial film studies viewing. But uh, yeah, and so Amos Vogel, who's who's also his book, Film as a Subversive Art, is one of the sort of classics. Uh, should be on on the shelf of every person who's interested in film, and uh, you know, it features Brackage fairly prominently in it. And he's uh, you know, Amos Vogel was definitely uh, interested in what Brackage was doing and how he was breaking all the rules and and just doing what nobody else was doing with film. By the time the 60s rolled around, he uh, had sort of given up on doing any kind of you know, commercial film work and uh, just decided to concentrate on his own extremely non-commercial work. There was luckily the, the uh, film culture in the 60s, the early 60s, was was conducive to 
him being able to just barely not starve to death, making these these crazy little uh, abstract films, personal diary abstract films. Yeah, so that we're we're going to talk about the stuff that he was doing in the '60s, which was the the peak of his popularity when he was really uh, you know talked about quite a bit in film circles as doing really important work and uh, interest in him started to fade after the 60s even though he continued to you know work just as actively um, making abstract experimental films but uh, but yeah this is 60s was his peak and that's and we're gonna talk about uh, a couple of things that are considered masterworks of his and and some other interesting things he was doing at the time but uh, the thing about brackage is that, Normally, we would just launch into these movies, but I feel that it's sort of hard to go through all these films and, and like, I feel like in a way we could have just picked one of these movies and talked about it for two hours, <laughs> or we do, we do what we're going to do, which is that we talk about all of these movies for a much shorter amount of time. But I feel like it's necessary in, in a way with him more than I've felt with any other filmmaker that we've done, that it's necessary to also sit there and, and take the time to understand who he was and what he was about and what he was doing, I think is is about as interesting to me as the films were themselves. And especially for me coming into this, having knowing nothing about him, watching all of these movies and then backtracking and and finding all this other stuff out and, and learning about him and reading the stuff that he was writing and reading all these interviews or watching interviews. Uh, all of that stuff was really intensely interesting to me. And I kind of regret having gone in blind, but at the same time, it was really good to go in blind and have like my initial reaction to all of this and then to backtrack and realize, oh, it was a feature, not a bug, you know, like this sort of like that to, to realize how much I actually did get out of, what I was watching, I thought was really interesting. So I feel I have to talk about what I, what I think the key to approaching brackage in good faith is. Do you think what you're what you're gonna say will make sense without uh, people having any sense of what his films actually look like? I mean, I guess we'll have some stills of some frames from his films on the on our web page for this episode. Uh, it's a different experience watching these frames in motion for sure. I just it it's so unlike anything else that uh, you know do before you listen to what we have to say about brackage, look look at some film stills. Look at you know find something on YouTube. Just just find something to get a sense of what this is all about um, because you really won't have anything to relate what we're saying to if you don't. But that said, yeah, launch into your your key to stand brackage. How do we understand this stuff? You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm the, the expert because I'm definitely not. But there's a lot of things that are, are worthwhile keeping in mind even before you see his films. So and, and I think that the, the, the key that for me is not it's not the key to Brackage. It's just the key to approaching Brackage is that you have to approach him in good faith. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say the key. it's the key to understanding him because that doesn't even feel like it's the right word. I feel like there isn't. It, it, it's like it's almost too provincial to merely understand brackage. No, but like it, it's too, it's it's too simplistic to to act like there there's only one way to interpret something that's so abstract. To, to me, to to accept that he's a a genuine outsider, I think is really important. 
this is, you know, as you said, somebody who grew up in an orphanage and, and lost his first adopted family that completely fell apart and then was basically given the gift of space and, and art from his second adopted family. And which is when he started to uh, get more into, you know, poetry and, and um, artistic expression and all of these things. And he considered himself a, a frustrated poet is what he considered himself. To, to sort of realize how he grew up, I think, is very important because he's not somebody who functions within a typical societal structure because it was never imposed on him long enough to have any meaning. You know, I think that when you when you come from such a chaotic background, you <laughs> it's like you have two options. You either like embrace the chaos or you become a serial killer. Like I just don't maybe even being a serial killer is embracing the chaos. Or you go the other way and try and create some stability in your life and uh, create this uh, this family structure that you never had and well that's what i mean but it's not it's not a it's not a recognizable family structure in a lot of ways i think that there's there's all the elements of a family structure but it's not like he he dreamed of suburbia you know i think you know the and it's very clear through the way that he made films and the way that he talks about films and the way that he talks about his relationship and his actual relationship with Jane was just completely, it's his own thing. Like it's really hard to point to that and, and say like, Oh yeah, I had that experience or something. You know, it's like, it really is genuinely, you know, an outsider's understanding and, and interpretation of, you know, these sort of all of the, the elements are there, but the structure is, is completely unique in his own. And I also probably should have mentioned in my biographical introduction that um, by the time the 60s rolled around, he'd had abandoned cities completely, New York, San Francisco, like all the places where people doing experimental films were finding audiences and could connect with others. He decided, no, I'm moving to the middle of nowhere Colorado, the the hills above Boulder, and the bulk of of his film production was done, you know, just in around his self built cabin in the in the hills of Boulder, Colorado. So he's uh, yeah, he's a long way from civilization here, and he's a good opportunity to do a lot of navel gazing, which it's easy to accuse him of doing, but it's not just that he's. You know, as far as any artist is is just a navel gazer, of, of course, you know. He is exploring aspects of film that nobody else has ever explored or had never explored up to that point. And uh, if anybody has seen the opening credits for the movie Seven, those, it's, uh, you know, a lot of flickering, a lot of you know, very quick editing, ordinary things abstracted into you know, just objects on the screen and, and seen for such a short period of time that you're you're struggling to to recognize what it is you're seeing. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of, you know, music videos are, have, have taken from Stan Brackage's techniques. And if you've never seen it before, you, you can jump into this and sort of recognize some things that have been used by others in, in more commercial ways. So I have this I have this quote here from David E. James and Stan Brackage filmmaker that I thought was pretty useful in understanding too what, you know, again, this this idea of him as a genuine outsider, but what his priorities are when he's making art and making film. Uh, so quote, his vision of an uncompromised art of film understood art in a romantic idealized form. 
It was supposed to proceed from a source that was simultaneously somatic and divine that he named, quote, the muse. <laughs> it entailed the complete primacy and autonomy of the visual sense and the recreation in film of seeing in all its physiological and psychological forms from the impulses of the brain cells to the sightings of cosmic events. So that's a bit, that's a lot, but um, mm. I can explain that or I can keep going. What do you want to do? I think you need to explain it because I've, that's probably, <laughs> you know, I read that a few times myself okay. and, and hearing you say it, I still don't, uh, I can't really unpack it completely. So I think number one, with, with that alone, you have this understanding that he's coming, he's coming to art from, from the, uh, you know, the romantic idealized form of art. He's all about individualism and emotions and the beauty of form, which is to say, basically, he approaches all of this with a sort of lofty ideal. Um, you know, when he's making art, he's making art. <laughs> this isn't like, you know, you can you can look at some of his films and think like, ah, it's just a bunch of flickering, right? But that's not, you know, he, he does not see it that way whatsoever. This thing about the muse is, is sort of interesting because... Uh, it came up the the when I was watching. We watched a documentary, which we can we can talk about. But his children were bringing it up, and that's when I realized, oh, this is really a <laughs> this really is an outsider family because the way that his children were talking about him, they were just so casually like, well, his muse will blah 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 blah, and you're like, what? Like what? <laughs> that mean um they kind of rolled their eyes a little bit talking they, about his they muse, did but, but they, they also it's, said it's, it so yeah. like naturally as if this was just like mm -hmm. a thing that oh dad you know dad's in their muse you know like it was just kind of interesting but um well actually let me just finish this uh david e james had one more thing he has to say here it says it equally entailed the rejection of the narrative forms of the industrial feature film and indeed all of visualizations apart from the most assertively first person and instead proposed the sufficiency of a fundamentally domestic cinema, an art version of home movies in which family life and the filmmaking it engendered were lived as an aesthetic pr process. I think that's a big key, this idea of, yeah. of an art version of home movies. I mean, I, I think the other key to, to him is that he's trying to create a new way of seeing. Like, that's sort of his you know that's what makes his home movies art is he's trying to see he's trying to see the world the way you know our eyes see it he, I, there's actually a great moment in the in the documentary where he talks about when a film pans it's so smooth and you see everything equally like there's not you know everything gets its own you know set amount of time and you see nothing stands out but when your your eyes actually try and duplicate the, a panning motion, like if you keep your head still and move your eyes, they, your eyes jump around. Like you can't, it's really impossible to do a smooth camera pan with your eyes, with your, your head moving still because your eyes keep focusing on different things. And that's, that was really helpful for me in, in sort of both interpreting what his critics say about what he's trying to do and you know, just watching his films in general. Like, I didn't, it wasn't until after I watched this set of films that, uh, you know, I watched the documentary and got to hear him describe it that way. But this, yeah, this way of seeing, this way that, that more resembles the way that people see the world or, you know, ways that you can use a camera to see the world uh, in ways that has never been seen before, that can't be seen by the human eye. So, and I think if you're going to start, if you're going to give some pieces of his, uh, 
of his uh, what's it called Met- metaphors on vision book, then you're probably going to get into that stuff a little. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way that that I learn is that you know I I feel like it's it's just worthwhile to sort of jump in, read as much as you can, and then backtrack. <laughs> so that's kind of my thinking with this. But um, so in metaphors on vision which he, uh, he published, published in 1963. Uh, I found this pretty enlightening. It opens with um, P. Adams Sidney, who is a, an avant-garde cinema historian, uh, has an introduction in, in an interview. And his introduction is a great summary of Brackage's ideals, specifically that of the camera and the filmmaker should be there to capture the vision and not impose scripted visions on the subject matter or audience. So that's, again, talking about not coming up with this idea of like, we're going to let's ha- I have an idea. Let's figure out how to film it. It's more let's I'm, I am filming what is there. You know, he's he's capturing the vision. He's not imposing vision. The interview in the beginning, it's it's totally worth if you can get your hands on just reading even the interview. The The book is a lot. And we're, <laughs> I'll give you some quotes for the book. But the interview is great. Uh, there, there's this sort of wild story about the family dog eating the corpse of the previous dead family dog. And <laughs> his realization of, of life and death made him weep. And he inured himself to the smell as as he uh, went back to, to film the corpse of the dead family dog. And then when he was in the editing room, it gave him diarrhea. There's like this crazy, crazy story about it, which is like, as you said, he's so he's so verbose about it, too. He's just like just goes on for paragraphs, even just reading this. I'm like, I can hear him like excitedly talking about this. Um, but the best parts of his of his book for me was his own personal essays, which I think it genuinely reads like you're watching his films. In a way, I actually liked it better. I liked reading this better than I liked watching his movies because I think, uh, I, you know, I, I like that narrative. I like having the the, the words better than... I, I got more out of him. I got more out of his words than I did from his images a lot of the times. But it, it reads just like his films because it's all about... It's all like digression, repetition, and like this really flowery prose and... I gotta, I gotta quote it for you just for a bit, just because you have to, you have to get a sense of it. Um, I'm, I'm gonna like skip around, but from his uh, chapter on the camera's eye, quote, "Oh, transparent hallucination, superimposed of image mirage of movement, heroine of a thousand and one nights. You obstruct the light, muddy the pure white beaded screen with your shuffling patterns." The devout who break popcorn together in your humblest double feature services <laughs> know that you are still being born. Search for your spirit in their dreams and dare only dream when in contact with your electrical reflection. Being innocent, they do not consciously know that this church too is corrupt, but they react with counter hallucinations, believing in the stars and themselves among these lost angelic orders. Of themselves, they will never recognize what they are awaiting. Their footsteps, the dumb drum which destroys cinema. They are having the dream piped into their homes. The destruction of the romance through marriage, etc. And it goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I The thing, this, this kind of writing, if you can tell by the way I just read it, totally makes me roll my eyes. So it's not, I'm not a big fan of flowery prose. But even if I don't necessarily disagree with what he's saying, I mean, I actually found I really enjoyed reading this, uh, his writing, even though because I think he has a lot of really interesting points. 
you know, like the paragraph I was just reading from, he's like basically going on to to bitch about just how, you know, cinema's broken because it's controlled by money, and and you know, it's like yeah, <laughs> it's, that's still the case. What what I like about his writing is that he seems like he's in a constant dialogue with the films that he's making. You know, he'll go into something and say, "Oh, I want to try this," and he'll, you know, he'll go and shoot some stuff and edit it and in uh, trial and error sorts of ways and, you know, do double exposures and just try all sorts of things. And then when he plays it back and sees what he's created, he will create his, you know, a new interpretation as if, oh yeah, this is what I was trying to do all along. And that's what makes me roll my eyes more than just the, the, the style of the prose is that it's like, okay, you're, you're, (laughs) you are your own muse. I mean, you're, you're you're watching your own work and creating your interpretations of what you're doing that's, you know, partially based on what you're trying to do, but also partially based on trying to to sell your work as as important or, you know, trying to explain what this is this is why you should be watching this film. And uh I don't know. I I actually get less out of reading him talking about his own films and just watching them myself and I and that's part of you know my my frustration with this stuff is that I have a a a visceral reaction to his films and I have you know it's not emotional but I I have it gives me sensations and I don't necessarily know how to talk about them but the way I would talk about them is nothing resembling the way that he talks about his own work I think though he has this very spiritual approach to this and and in general I am not and I have never been the person that ever equates going to the movies with church or God. Uh, but he is, you know, I mean, I, I have a quote here from him where he says, you know, forget ideology for film unborn as it has. Uh, no language and speaks like an aboriginal monotonous rhetoric uh the moving picture the moving picture image without religious foundations let alone the cathedral the art form starts its search for god with only the danger of accepting an architectural inheritance from categorized 7 other arts it sins and closing the circle uh, you know let film be he says i mean basically he, it's like he calls he calls the imagination the only reality and he calls the camera's eye the limitation of the original liar. And he says that art is both a construct and the quickest way to engage with truth, life, and the divine. So, you know, it's, he's using words like like trick and effect. So he compares what the camera is capable of as magic, not in a derogatory sense, but in this like kind of like marvelous, uh, you know, sense of life. And it, it, there's this... All of this to me, I think, is really interesting, but it's I don't I mean, I don't relate to the (laughs) again, you know, I don't I don't see the spiritual aspect of this. But, you know, he's also he's hyper aware of the the camera as a tool. So it's like he'll he'll talk in these really lofty, um, flowery ways about what he's doing. And yet he's still there. There's still this this degree of self-awareness of of the fact that you know it is something that he's being created uh through his camera and that you know what he's capturing he might be trying to capture reality and and something that is truer than life in in an art form that he believes is is has the ability to do that but you know there's still this like aspect of you know it's like he he's aware of the camera as a tool and in the artifice that's inherent 
in using that tool, but he also points to that hyper, the, the hyper reality of manipulation that you can achieve through filmmaking, such as editing and the ability to pause uh, a moment in time or capture like a refraction of light or whatever, like its ability to, to, to decode and reveal to us uh, what we can't see with the naked human eye, like all of that magic to him. Does that make sense? Like he talks about transcending a quote, the original physical restrictions and the inherent world of eyes, end quote. And he thinks like the idea of a, of mainstream cinema that show, is showcasing realism as a joke. Like I, I feel like it's, it's all very Magritte. Like this is not a pipe, mm-hmm. you know, it's like he, he's very anti narrative film because it's it's a, it's all a manipulation but he's very pro using the camera to manipulating the camera to then show you the truth of reality that the human eye can't actually see yeah and he's also very invested in the camera as as the first person you know camera stilo like writing with film the the you're never allowed to forget the creator behind his films. And part of his problem with commercial films uh, is that it's it uses every every trick it can to make you forget that there's somebody with a camera who's filming this. You know, you're supposed to forget there's a script. You're supposed to forget everything. You're just supposed to watch it unfold in front of your eyes on the screen and forget you know any of the art that went into making the film and he is very much about like this is me making this film i don't want you to ever forget that i'm the one controlling what you're seeing here that's definitely the you know the impetus behind a lot of the really interesting you know new wave film french new wave in particular but uh, a lot of the auteur cinema of the 60s is uh, this idea that commercial film so much of it is meant for you to get lost in and and forget about the the artist, the creator. But we want to create a new cinema where me, the person who's making the film, is is the main character. And nobody succeeded in that more than than Stan Brakhage. He is always the the main character in every film he ever made. Yeah. Well, I'll say he he's a he's a genuine outsider, <laughs> which is which is why as much as I want to use the word pretentious, I, I just really I kind of can't uh, when it comes to him, because I don't think it even applies because he's not tethered to pretense. <laughs> like, I fully believe he's authentic in his vision. Um, the problem of pretense comes when, you know, someone's trying to emulate his style without having a vision as as. Um, clear as he has to back it up like I think that somebody who's trying to do something in a brackage style would be pretentious but I I genuinely think that you know he he created his own structure in his own order of the world and he and he held himself to these like really strict aesthetic and anti-capitalist standards and you know it which which is in a way it's this like your typical ironic reaction for those who are rebelling, you know, to force themselves right in, into a uniform uh, of their own making, it's still a uniform, <laughs> you know, but um, the word pretentious is so, you know, it's meaning is so nebulous. It's so, uh, you know, relative to the person who's using it to, you know, I think for me, the difference between pretentious and not pretentious is whether I connect with the the art that has been created by this 
person and it's easy to just you know dismiss it as pretentious if you can't connect with it but i you know i found myself connecting with with a good portion of of what stan brackage does in these films so i can't you know in my in the way i use that term i i i wouldn't use it to describe him because what he's doing is you know can connect with people can connect with you know i I'd so yeah, that, that that's that's all I'm saying is that uh, I, I I'm not sure it would be e- it's easy to use that word to describe what he's doing, but uh, you know it's a, it's also a a, a a sort of a careless word to throw around, or it's an easy word to throw around carelessly. I agree. I really I I think it's um it's you know the same way that your you know parents will tell you hate is a strong word. I think pretentious is a strong word. <laughs> I think that uh it, it's it's. It's to be employed, um, you know, when when necessary, when when relevant and uh, just merely uh, not understanding something or having something that was is presented to you that's hard to understand doesn't doesn't really qualify for for pretentious for me. I guess let's just go into his movies then. You want to talk about his movies? It, it feels like the right time. <laughs> yeah, usually we have a whole plan like. Who's going to describe this film? Who's going to describe, you know, this? Yeah, but we, we don't have any kind of plan. We don't here, have any so music sure. to play before the movies. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. You know, it's, did, did you watch these with no sound? Yeah. I, yeah, I, I didn't play my own music or anything. I just just watched them as, uh, as they would have been presented at uh, Anthology Film Archives. I found it really rough to... I, I mean, I wanted to also not have any sound the first time I felt like I I had to like I had to be a bit of a purist but I also had a really hard time watching it without anything so what I ended up doing was finding a YouTube video that played an hour loop of a 16 millimeter projection (laughs) (laughs) so I just had that like that hum of a camera sound playing the entire time and it really helped my focus (laughs) and I felt like I actually think that that's that would be the one Stan Stan himself would say that that would be the one the one compromise he he'd be willing to make on the on that issue the sound of the film running through the projector it really helped so I'll I'll just throw that out there if anyone if you need but the first one we're going to talk about actually has sound and and music and a plot almost resembles a, an actual film yeah which is Mr. Tompkin inside himself <laughs> Yeah, it's based on this book called Mr. Tompkins by George Gamow, who actually shows up at the beginning of this film to sort of introduce what it's all about. And what it's about is to travel through the human body, through the bloodstream, and to see you know how the body works. It's 45 minutes. It's you would call it an educational film, but it's it's done in sort of a comic style. It's brackage uh, has these. This character, Mr. Tompkins, who's uh, a bit of a uh, hypochondriac, and he, you know, he'll read an article about cancer in the newspaper and think, "Oh, I've got to go to the doctor to make sure I'm okay." So he's, uh, and you know, there's a little back and forth with with his wife, and it's, you know, what I liked about starting this 
Odyssey. The Brackage films, yeah, this Odyssey with uh, with Mr. Tompkins is uh, is that it shows that he Stan Brackage, you know, he can work with actors. He can write dialogue that's you know kind of amusing. He's you know he can work with sound. I, his the pacing of this is really the problem. Like may, that might be. As a narrative filmmaker, probably pacing is it would be his his major uh, problem if he was trying to produce commercial films. But uh, it's uh, yeah, he he tells an amusing little story of Mr. Tompkins going to Miss Doctor Street and uh, and Doctor Street uh, injects Mr. Tompkins and himself into Mr. Tompkins' bloodstream and and just describes what he's seeing inside his body with the you know red blood cells and the white blood cells and they start near the heart and go through the body and then end up you know back in the heart and there's this great like they're projected over this you know microscopic photography of of the blood moving through the bloodstream and uh, it's it's fu- it's fun like at 15 minutes it would be a hoot it I, it would be great at at 45 minutes it's uh it's a, it's a bit of a chore to get through, but uh, it's still, you know, it's like, uh, you know, the, the, the old chestnut that you've got to learn the rules before you're allowed to break them. And, and starting with Mr. Tompkins inside himself, it's, you know, we can see that, you know, it's not that he couldn't make more commercial work. It's uh, that he just wasn't very interested in it. The, the comedy in this plays, he, I, I chuckled. Several times. There's a great part um, where there was some some model of a organ, and and he says that looks like a that doesn't look real. Looks like a model, and the doctor's like, "This is a dream, so you can't see anything you've never seen before. <laughs> this is a model in Yale or whatever." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes it makes a point of that. Well, this is all a, a dream, so we're not actually inside your bloodstream, but this is. It, yeah, it breaks the fourth wall in a way I actually... Because I don't think that this is really that... For 1960, this is really not that, um, you know, much worse than anything else in its budget range as far as, like, you know, being essentially a, a tour of the human body that I feel like you would show to high school students or something. Like, it's pretty um, it's pretty basic, and uh, it, it kind of reads him as almost like a stage play. It's shot like a stage play. It's like the two two guys kind of standing in place and pretending to swim uh, with, you know, different gelled, you know, lights uh, flashing on them and then intercut with close-ups on actual body parts or things or models. And, and uh, yeah, you know, it's like, it's like basically two guys rolling around on the floor. <laughs> There's some clever cleverness involved in sort of trying to get these guys in the right yeah. position so that when they're filmed, they it actually looks like they're moving through the body. So it's not, you know, it's not a you know, cheapo project. Like Brackage clearly, like even though this this format is not his cup of tea necessarily, he's interested enough in the in the subject and you know making the most of this opportunity to to make this film for the University of Colorado or whatever it was that. Uh, he he's not you know he doesn't he doesn't skimp on it he 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 puts he puts a lot of what he uh, what he's figured out even at this point you know he'd been making experimental films for you know at least five years before uh, he made this thing and he he'd gotten quite a bit of attention the window water baby moving his film about the birth of his first child um, got him a ton of attention that was that was the year before this so there was 
like it got attention for you know this is the first time a, a, an actual birth was recorded on film and you know he does he does a lot of his brackage tricks where it's not just a straight ahead shot of this is what it looks like when a water's when when a baby's being born and, and he intercuts it with his own reactions and and uh, you know his wife in the bathtub. So it's still an art movie, but uh, I, I think he's sort of, you know, the attention he got for this sort of connected him with, with the world of, of science and biology a bit. And that's how, uh, not knowing, and there's very little written anywhere about this Mr. Tompkins film. It was sort of just good luck that I happened to find it uh, floating around out there. But, you know, he definitely has this interest in the human body that he was exploring in his own personal films. And, you know, he sort of said, well, what can I do with that on a more, you know, educational level? And I, I think he did a, a pretty fun job. I mean, there's de- everything here it shows up in his later films in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. All of this sort of microscope, microscopic photography and and, and trying to he's trying to show things that even in the sixties, they couldn't see. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's pretty inventive and it's, and it's just, it's funny to see as, as we go on and he gets into this idea of closed eye vision mm-hmm. where it's basically like, you know, when you close your eyes and you look up at a light source and you can see all these things, like either you see things moving behind your eyes or you see refractions of light that kind of make it through. And, you know, so it's like he he has a lot of that in this, not as that, but as like, you know, body functions and things like that. And also the, the fact that this whole plot device is a sort of a dream and dreams come up in pretty much all of his movies. And especially, you know, it figures pretty heavily into Dog Star Man, which we'll talk about later. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's neat. It's this is this is like a, if you're a Brackage fan, if you can find it, it's really it's a really fun thing to watch, especially just knowing that this came out in 1960 and then everything that came out after it. Uh, the thing I liked the most about this is in the credits, <laughs> it, it said, microphotography of vessels of living bat's wing, mouse lung, red blood, slides in photography of internal heart of sheep and external heart of living dog by Stan Brackage and Igor Gamov. <laughs> That was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like some of this uh, internal photography, he reused this very footage that's in this film uh, later in, in some of his other films. You definitely get internal organs in Dog Star Man and uh, some of his other things. And it looks just like what's in this film, so it might as well be. Yeah, this is not the brackage that anybody's ever talking about, but it's an interesting way to start the episode. Same year, 1960, he did The Dead. He got quite a bit of attention from uh, just from the, uh, you know, the avant-garde community. It's uh, him just filming black and white. Or no, I guess there's some color in that. He mixes black and white and, and color. And um, he, he's in Paris filming. You see a lot of the, the Seine and people walking along the, the, the walls above the Seine. And, and he's at the Père Lachaise Cemetery and you get a lot of gravestones. But then he does all sorts of optical tricks where he's, you know, he shows the, he has a lot of these shots in positive and negative at the same time. And you'll sort of see them moving. They're not totally synchronous or they'll be, you know, they're not sort of moving in conjunction, but then every so often the like the positive and the negative would will come together and it's sort of 
you know you get this excitement when the when the, when when these images come together a lot of a lot of what he's doing here and you'll we you see it you know mixed into other films that he's doing is is this double exposure thing so uh, it's not just positives and negatives you'll see you know things just different parts of the graveyard uh, on, on top of each other and it's sort of you know, serendipity about what, uh, f- from what I can tell, maybe Stan Brackage has, you know, maybe he's, he'd say his muse was guiding him into, you know, to, to what should be superimposed in his films. But it's, uh, you know, you just see, you know, lots of lots of different footage, and sometimes it really comes together beautifully, these superimposed images. It's about 10 minutes long. This is this is sort of a good intro to Brackage, you know, more more of an appropriate intro than Mr. Tompkins. This is a very successful film. It, it captures what he's trying to do really well. You know, for the time, it was unlike anything anybody had seen much of before. And uh, Amos Vogel and others got gave him, you know, a lot of credit for doing something pretty interesting here. Yeah, what 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 can you say about the dead? Apparently, Kenneth Anger is the guy in the cafe in The Dead. Hmm. Yeah, he's definitely one of the, was a big influence on Brackage early on. Yeah, I the there was an interview with Brackage where he's, he sort of describes this one as, as the living and the walking dead and how we relate to the dead and we and we imitate them. And, and th- it was interesting. I mean, coming into this, not knowing anything about him, I... I I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, it's short enough and it is uh, memorable and you can definitely see this, you know, this juxtaposition that he's trying to portray. Um, it didn't wow me or anything. I, it's funny to, to, though, think about it now, knowing a little bit more about him and what he was trying to do and the situation that when he had shot this, he was in Paris and he had was this is when he had his death wish. He, uh, you know, shot this not sure what he was going to do. He was trying to get funding from a festival that didn't pan out. And uh, this was before he met, you know, Jane and, and was, you know, in a better headspace. And so in a lot of ways, I think he was trying to capture his own, his own feeling and his own mood. And, and um, it's definitely, it, it has an eeriness and a, and a creepiness to it. If you, if you engage with it, it's there, but you can also like watch this and be like, ah, art house bullshit <laughs> yeah. student student film, film I mean, exactly I, it's kind of what I mean, yeah. it, it's interesting because it's, it's exactly the kind of thing that you know what i feel like there's a lot of this this stuff with brackage where you know when people look at a jackson pollock painting and they're like oh my kid could have done that and you're like but your kid can't do that <laughs> <laughs> and i think that there's quite a bit of that in a lot of his movies in like okay just images that are inverted of a graveyard like yes any any 12 year old and to to 18 year old to 26 year old can do that and will do that but does it work as well as what brackage is doing here is it edited as well as what brackage is doing here because that's really the the key is in the the editing in the presentation and the you know that that's where the, it's funny as you you said at the beginning that it, you know the first one goes over long i feel like um the vast majority of what he's doing actually doesn't. I think that it's actually pretty pretty sparsely. I think I'm more impressed personally when they're shorter. They have more of a, a, an impact for me. But um, but yeah, I think that this actually it, it is a good introduction to him because it it does show it sort of shows you what you're in for. <laughs> yeah. The next one is a thigh line liar triangular from 1961. 
This is another birth movie. I think this is his daughter, Neowen. I can't keep track. He's he had seven kids, five from the first marriage that I think all of their births were filmed, <laughs> and two from his second marriage that you know, they weren't allowed to be filmed. I'm I'm my personal uh thought is that he kept having children because he just wanted to get that perfect shot (laughs) (laughs) though apparently jane herself said that she was the one who who very much enjoyed being pregnant so that's that's why but um i loved this this one is what really got my interest i i enjoyed the first couple and then when we got to this one i like absolutely went wild for it because it it is this you know it's this very explicit birth but then it, he he takes to the film, which is something that I don't. Did we even mention this? Like that he draws directly on the film, or he uses different like paints and chemicals in order to manipulate the film itself. In this one, he he does it to such a fine degree to to every single piece of the film that that the the movement is just absolutely. I don't even know. Like I, you have better words to describe this. Like this is this is where I start to to sound yeah. mute because I just. Like, I, I don't know how to describe what he's doing. It's just that it makes everything just, like, radiate movement. And and it is, I mean, this is exactly this kind of closed-eye vision of this is the sort of thing that you see when you, you know, close your eye and you or you press your eyeball or something and you suddenly have all these, like, squiggles in your vision. And, and he does it. I mean, he so, he so perfectly captures it. But I think what, what really connected with me on this and what i thought was really interesting is that it it's that he really is capturing his own anxiety about this moment and i don't even know if he was hyper aware of that but that to me is what this is cuz it's just like birth as it's like it <laughs> this is i'm like i want to be like it's just fucking metal cuz that's what it is like <laughs> this is just the most hardcore version of of giving birth uh you know on on film because it's just so much like intensity to it every single second is just filled with like pain and intensity and i think that it it captures better more so than like if you're just looking at a baby coming out there's almost something strangely peaceful about watching the image of that but like to have all of this happening especially with no sound i think gives you that better feeling of intensity and uh you know his own insecurity in in what's happening and but is also his interest and and the sort of you know the the magic of it yeah i i have really mixed feelings in a way how he he'll take you know life these you know these important life moments and then abstract them with these you know chemical treatments on the film or you know scratching doing like scratched emulsion animations which i i never really care for too much he doesn't do it all that much but he does some like you know he'll he'll animate these you know concentric circles around you know baby's head or something and i you know i don't i don't know what he's trying to accomplish by that i i guess maybe he's trying to duplicate this this closed eye vision a little See, bit but that's exactly when i connect with this like that's when i'm like oh that's life <laughs> like that's when i fully understand his like spiritual uh preaching like to me that that is capturing something more hyper real than than reality at the i mean yeah i mean it's a real shock to your senses because you know this is this you know daily occurrence people have babies every day <laughs> um it's not 
You know, it's not shouldn't be exoticized. It shouldn't be like a freak show. Um, but at the same time, to like draw all over it, it it seems like you know there's something slightly I don't know I don't sacrilegious. I can't think of a better word for it. But it's you know they're sort of distorting the beauty of nature uh, to create art, which I guess that's what all art is. And but on top of that, it's like because it's done in such a stylized way, like it's so quickly edited. There's so much this flicker. There's all, so much going on in every frame that it's, I mean, it's exciting to watch. It's, you know, five or six minutes and you're like, you're glued to the screen because there's so much happening just on the surface of the film. And, you know, you get peeks into what's happening in this birth, like through all of this distortion and and chem, um you know all this chemical distortion and and paint and uh it's it's exciting to watch uh so i can't describe why i i see it and and get a little thrill out just out of the technique and, and how he's abstracted this exactly what you're saying it's like how how do you describe this stuff that's that was my that was my why i was dreading this episode it's <laughs> When I actually have to try and describe what it is I like about these things, I, they're just there. There aren't words for it. Well, it's interesting that you say that you feel that you know this idea of, of manipulating nature. It's like I I find that um, the abstraction to me, art the art that speaks to me and and pulls something out of me emotionally or hits something in my brain and makes me think truth <laughs> is is really never. It's never the like the hyper realistic painting. It's never the the photograph like that. Well, I can't say it's not that. It, it's never the it's never see, the drawing of the is. photograph. It's never a photorealistic painting. Is is really what I'm thinking of? It's never something that is, which I think there's plenty of really awesome photorealist artists. But you know the stuff that really speaks to me is the the more abstract stuff, and it is the thing that is showing me something that I don't see on this planet and yet makes me feel the exact feeling that I will feel when I'm in a situation like, you know, unfortunately neither of us has given birth, so we can't speak to how it feels to give birth. But, um, you know, the, this, to have something that's this kinetic on screen and, and, uh, moving, I think, you know, it, 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 to me, it, it captures a type of an, of an intensity now, for him, obviously, and it always comes back to him, is the intensity of, of his own emotion. But I think that there is something else there that it goes... I think this in this film, he achieves going beyond just himself, which I don't always feel that way for, for all of his movies. But we'll get into it. Hmm. The next film, 1962, Blue Moses. Don't be afraid. There's a filmmaker in back of every scene. In back of every word I speak. Back no, don't be afraid. Speak. No, don't turn around. It's useless. You see? You see my back. But if I could really turn myself around and see, there would be nothing but empty black space. And that glaring beam of illumination, those moving strings, 
There's a film pulling, back of every word I speak. Pulling, no. It's, it's atypical. It's about ten minutes long, for you. Um, but it's definitely more in oh, line with what Brackage's uh, artistic goals were uh, than Mr. Tompkins, for sure. It's uh, it's a sound film, first of all. His his friend Robert Benson. It's uh, he's just got him. You know, in front of the camera. I mean, it's about something. It's about God, and and, <laughs> and uh, I don't know. He, it, it has this guy as himself, and then at one point he's painted up like the devil, and he's, he's laughing on the camera. You know, he'll be superimposed on him as himself, and he's laughing maniacally. And then, uh, you know, the second part is he's mostly dressed as, I assume, Moses, because it's called Blue Moses, and he's got sort of he sort of talks in this this Charlton Heston voice and uh and he's got but it's all very he's got these really uh, thick lines on his face to to outline his his eyes and his nose so he kind of looks like an animated character as as Moses so it's you know there's and and he's just out in nature and so you get some of that like shaky camera work that and and double exposure that Stan Brackage does but the, at the same time you've got somebody you know, speaking at the camera about what I can't really say. I watched it twice, and I still am not really sure what the narrator or the the subject of this film is trying to say. But uh, it's fun. It's funny. It feels there's a lot of flickering lights. So Brackage is playing with like you know turning lots of different lights on and off really uh, really quickly. It's the most Lynchian of anything that that we watched. For this episode, I think the lights have a lot to do with that, where you just get different, you know, you get darkness and then different lights get turned on or flickered and you get different, you know, aspects of, of what you're seeing in front of the camera. And and just the sort of playful, you know, absurdity of it gives it sort of a David Lynch feel. I wouldn't say in general there's much connection between Lynch and, and Brackage, but this has... It reminded me of, of Robert Wilson, actually, the playwright. <laughs> Uh-huh. He has a lot of this kind of this kind of dialogue, though. I thought that this actually this was um, I, I think this is really uh, uh, Stan Brackage at his funniest. Mm-hmm. This is him breaking the fourth wall and breaking down cinema while he's making a movie. I think that it's it's pretty much a, a satire on scripted film. All of the dialogue is about like there's a filmmaker behind every word I speak and, you know, there's empty black space when I turn around. You know, it's like about pointing out and dissecting all of the aspects of a film set while making a film on film. You know, it's like this. It's it's just sort of a a scene within a scene within a scene. And that's what's funny about it. it, And it sort of plays on, as you said, this Charlton Heston style uh, voice and dialogue and, and this almost... I don't, it's like almost like kabuki-esque makeup even though it does it it's it's not it doesn't look japanese but it's just very you know it's very like over the top and and satirical yeah yeah it's all it's all very tongue-in-cheek it definitely feels like a lark more than it, much of anything else on this list of films that we watch yeah i mean I, I i love this one this one was great as we've established in previous episodes i'm a big you know pinter fan so just like random fragmented dialogue that repeats itself and has a different meaning every single time is like 100% my kind of jam. (laughs) Love it. His next film, however, Sartre's Nausea. A four minute 
film in black and white. Uh, on six, shot on 16 millimeter. Should have mentioned that all of these films he shot on 16 millimeter film. Um, he will change formats later in the 60s, and we'll get into that a bit. But it's uh, you know it's it's not 35, so it's smaller smaller format. I think it's you know just a little cheaper to to produce films on 16, and you can. I think it's cheap enough that you can you can sort of mess with the film itself without feeling like oh I'm, I'm throwing all sorts of money away and I, I think that's sort of allowed him to be to get as experimental and just try all sorts of different things. A lot of what he's doing wasn't exactly a choice; it was more of a necessity. But he used that sort of limitation. He not only embraced it, but he sort of canonized it. After Dogman Star, he he started using eight millimeter and had created a whole philosophy about why. You know, he had practical reasons and also, you know, philosophy created around why he was shooting an 8mm now instead of 16. But, uh, yeah, for, for now, sort of a compromise, sort of an in-between in place between the commercial format of, of 35mm and, and 16. But this Sartre's nausea that we watched next was probably the thing I got the least out of of what we watched. Black and white, uh, you get statue and some benches and some trees and you the the war the the frame sort of gets distorted it's a little warped and i don't i don't know i at at, at this point i i just these few that we, we watched so far and it jumped into sartre's nausea which is inspired by the book clearly but i knowing enough about sartre to to try and you know, see what the connection is between him and, and this film. I, I, you know, I didn't see anything. Yeah, this one didn't do it for um, me either. I thought, I thought it, it seemed more woozy than nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like one of the things that's sort of interesting and maybe to point out with this one is that this is a sort of stretching of the screen and the fisheye style, uh, you know, look. And, and a lot of what he was doing was, was, you know, sort of having to break his own equipment in order to get, something out of his camera and i think that that's kind of what he's doing in in this one but then he'd follow it up with moth light <laughs> definitely one of his most well-known works and this is where he did not actually shoot anything on film he just taped <laughs> a bunch of junk he found around um, onto the film itself and then projected that. So a lot of, you know, moth wings and leaves, you know, a lot of a lot of vegetable matter, a lot of... He had, uh, you know, these strips of tape that he would just tape these these thin, you know, thin things he could find, things that were were mostly translucent to a certain degree onto this film, and then he would... He just projected it, and it's, it's stunning. It really just looks like... And people don't even know what film looks like anymore. But if you can imagine the the leader that that you see, the like a white leader when you're when you're projecting a film, and you know it gets kind of dirty, and you see little specks, and they're moving, and you see these specks just for you know one twenty fourth of a second because that's how, you know, that's the speed of the of the frames of film as they as they go through a projector, and you know it's sort of like you get this this white leader that. You know, progressively gets like super super dirty so that you've got like these moth wings and things and it's, so it's all just kind of a uh, yellowish brownish you know, sort of looks like you're looking at at microscope slides projected at 24 frames a second it's incredible and it's uh it's justly famous even if you haven't seen it you've seen things that are inspired by the the flickering of these magnified images 
on the screen. And yeah, it's three minutes, so seek it out, watch it now, and you'll definitely get a good idea of the kind of groundbreaking work that Brackage was doing. Yeah, this one I thought it was it's definitely beautiful. It's 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 very, very cool. It's definitely I think a, one of these cinema must sees as far as being a completely uh, unique vision. I didn't get much out of it personally, other than just thinking it was really cool. Yeah. I didn't read to see if he had any philosophy behind this film. I mean, to be honest, his philosophy behind these films doesn't mean <laughs> much of anything to me. Like, I see him as exactly what he's described, an experimental filmmaker. There's not enough is made of him as a scientist. He talks about himself as an artist. The people who are writing these appreciations of his work or talking about his artistry. But I think deep down, he's just got kind of a scientific mind and he's really attracted to all, you know, this biological matter that he sticks to the, the film in, in this movie. And he's also just like, oh, why don't I try that? Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's, you know, he's just like trying a million different things just to see what works, to see what it looks like when it's projected. And I think that's hugely valuable. And I just, there is this kind of spectrum between science and art, like experiment and creating beauty that, uh, that he's, he's sort of caught in. You know, no matter how you know, thought out his films may be, there is always this aspect of, well, I just tried a bunch of stuff and this looked really cool. And I've, I was using my camera this way and I decided to use it this way instead. And I, you know, spent four weeks figuring out how to do this with my camera. And this is, this is the result. So it's, yeah, I, I think it's the beauty of science. A lot of this stuff that he put out and, uh, and Mothlight is a perfect example of that. Yeah, definitely. The Dog Star Man, which is the next one. Well, also the previous one, he did it in five different parts, and so he's he's been working on this for for you know over the course of the whole beginning of the '60s. But but we watched it next, and uh, let's let's see how let's see if you can sum up Dog Star Man. Well, this this ties into that whole story about the the dead dog and the other dog eating the dog. But um, I think what's kind of neat about Dog Star Man is is how much Jane figures into his filmmaking and in general, especially from here on out. Well, actually from thigh line, <laughs> you know, where he's filming her giving birth. Um, but she was very collaborative with him in a way that I don't, doesn't seem to get like, you know, he's very upfront about it in, in interviews and she is upfront about her contributions. But for some reason, all of these movies say directed by Stan Brackage. And in a way I kind of feel like, uh, you know, Dog Star Man, in which she actually shot half the footage and inspired the entire film and is in it. <laughs> well, she, she, I guess she's not in it explicitly, but, um, you know, it, she's in a lot of these movies. And, and so I just, th that's a thing that I don't fully get is why she doesn't actually get co-authorship for some of these but i know that it's his vision and his oh yeah every every film ends by bracket yeah he, he does that not not dog star man incidentally but pretty much everything else ends with this like scratched into the emulsion animation of you know someone writing by bracket on, on the film itself 
yeah, I I didn't really think so much about the authorship of these films and how much Jane ha- and and the rest of his family, for that matter, has has to do with with the finished product. But yeah, uh, it's like yeah. you know, I kind of think that's something we could in in this day and age we could reconsider. But um, anyhow, <laughs> <laughs> Dog Star Man, uh, it's you know, as you said, it's it's split into several parts here. The the prelude. Brackage himself said he, quote, wanted Prelude to be a created dream for the work that follows rather than surrealism, which takes the inspiration from dream. I thought that was an interesting quote because it's just the idea that dreams are are formed from previous days. And so, you know, it's it's he wants to sort of show that that any previous day is goes as far back as to the the collective memory of all of mankind in his head. So, you know, it's not just what's happened in your life it's the previous days of of the universe so in dog star man opens with this shots of like sun flares and stars and things a comet or something there's all of this um space and closed eye vision stuff where it looks almost like as if a you know an unborn baby is is uh you know dreaming or something um, from there, it kind of turns into this this <laughs> mountain man on a mountain with a dog, and he is climbing up a mountain. Uh, it's a snowy mountain, and that's it. It's an entire world of a man climbing up a mountain with a dog. He calls it a two steps forward, one step back progression, and that's that's sort of what you get. This this man failing as he's trying to get up a mountain. He's got an axe over his shoulder and a dog. And this is like his big movie. This this is it. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's silly. I mean, it's so it's so clearly just a culmination of all the different techniques he's been trying and him trying to put some kind of a structure and meaning to what he's doing. I, I don't know why this movie of everything that he did would would affect you so adversely but uh i actually didn't like the the guy climbing the mountain stuff very much that when he gets when he gets too like documentary-ish or too like non-abstract it's it gets a little dull for me because oh just go back to the the painted frames go back to the you know crazy you know quick editing but the you know it's i his movies tend to get a little tedious when they're a little too like clearly this thing is happening on the screen but you know other than that i thought this was just a great 72 minutes of uh of what stan brackage does best my initial reaction to this one was like this to me was was the the definition of pretentious i i have more empathy for it now i think knowing a bit more about the fact that what he's trying to do in this is just something that i very I very much disagree with more so than he's being pretentious about it. Like <laughs> Brackage sort of, he believes in the idea that life is radiating, radiating out from within us as opposed to us internalizing the world. And he like, I have a quote here from him where he says the, the quote, the more personal or egocentric I would become, the deeper I could touch those universal concerns, which involve all man. And I just just fundamentally disagree (laughs) on one hand. Okay. On one hand, I think he's actually uh, correct. I think that when you're being very specific and you're being true to yourself and you are outlying your truth, I think that there is something very universal about that. But I think that if you go too far into that, if you box yourself too specifically, 
Uh, or I think the thing that he gets caught up on, and this is, this is, I think his biggest weakness is that he gets caught up still, even though he's, you know, he, he seems to live and thrive beyond societal boundaries in, in many ways. The thing that he still gets caught up in is masculinity. And this movie to me is just pure masculinity. It's just self-important shots of man versus nature and man trying to bend nature to as well and then being bent. And, you know, the camera is trying to conquer and conform nature. And and, and that's what he's doing. <laughs> that's the thing. <laughs> See, I just thought that stuff was boring. I didn't you you, you took it the next step and, and attributed a, a political. Well, because here's the it. thing is that it would have been OK and boring. But then he has these multiple shots of like disembodied female genitalia like lactating nipples and and these things that are shown in like you know a sort of sexual context they're shown in as as dog star man uh in the throes of making love or whatever and and i just i just can't help but think that meanwhile all this time he's standing there modestly with his pants on (laughs) standing around in angst and wrestling with the with the universe while this woman is only shown we don't ever see her face and it's jane we don't ever see her face and and she's shown only in in pieces of her body and the same the exact pieces of her body which are always what men like to pretend is is like oh the universal uh, mother uh, the the birth canal you know it's like this sort of like i just like that's the kind of stuff that i just can't <laughs> i i just think it's really obnoxious i think that's well. In in the context of this film, I think it worked great in the other one. <laughs> There's a lot of flesh, and I think it's part three in particular. And I, I yes, it does. Uh, you do when you can identify the parts of body that it's showing. It is you know lactating nipple or, or something like that. But there's there's so much flesh in that part. I think a lot of it is male flesh. You know, you just don't just don't get the penis so to to know exactly what you're looking at but there's there's definitely hairy there's hairiness there that uh, is not associated with uh with femininity so but that doesn't mean it wasn't like her you know it, it doesn't mean it wasn't her <laughs> I, like i just think that there's you know to to it, it just it falls into it falls into a trap that he seems to be otherwise outside of and i think actually in later films he almost does a better job at uh, escaping these sort of pitfalls, but in this one, I think he walks right into the trap of 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 pretense. In a lot of ways, I, I just I, this one didn't do it for me at all. I, I'm sure if I watched it again now, uh, having seen all of these movies and, and doing a lot more reading and understanding him, I might I might be a little less annoyed at it. But I was pretty pissed when I watched this one. I think the stuff that he does with the the footage of the baby, which is you know just a lot of footage of this newborn that uh, you know it's just it's the newborn's face, and he does all sorts of stuff. You know he he you know to, to basically destroys the 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 frame, just destroys the image of this you know this baby's face. Like there's plenty of the the baby, you know, just like you know the wonder of a, of a newborn's face sort of stuff. That's that's nice to watch, but then he'll. He does all sorts of, you know, stuff where he puts puts it in a circle and he uses, you know, optical imaging to move that circle with the baby's face around the frame. And he, the the most famous part of this this whole, you know, his epic Dog Star Man is when, he, like, you see the the film disintegrate, like right in the middle of the baby's face, and 
it's uh, you know seeing it in, in it's it's really it's often shown uh, excerpted like the frames that make up that that part of the film are shown you know frame by frame in film studies books but to see it, it happen in this film it happens so quickly more more quickly than you you could possibly imagine just from seeing the frames in a, in a in a film book um but it's also like a real shock like it sort of you know it it really hits you pretty pretty hard and quick and uh, you know i liked a lot of that stuff and then i don't i don't think everything in the in dog star man works but it really i can't deny that it's a major piece of work it's all right <laughs> uh then after that we had fire of waters which it was not a very good copy that we had i couldn't tell how much was just a bad vhs transfer and how much was intended but it's um black and white <laughs> just get it's mostly dark but then you get these flashes of lightning on the screen where you can sort of see silhouettes of houses it's a sound film i assume that the sound that we were hearing was was intentional that that was the sound that that brackage intended and it it is it actually a lot of it just sounded like the the sound of film going through a projector i thought it sounded but, like lightning uh, you'd also get this you yeah. heard lightning oh i'm not sure i heard lightning it may be heavily distorted lightning because you would get these super distorted sounds and uh it uh it was a neat effect it it didn't it didn't resonate too much with me but uh i thought this uh, one was funny too actually the the sort of like the the sun comes up and the film runs out i thought was a was cute <laughs> that yeah i i like that too yeah where these these houses that you only see revealed very briefly when the lightning is striking when the sun comes up you actually get to see their full outlines, and that's that's satisfying. That was actually a, a nice, a nice little touch and, there. And there's like a creepy warp laugh track or something at the end. I don't know. I heard lightning and laughter. I don't think you hear lightning anyway. <sighs> Thunder. <laughs> um, poshed from '65. The last one was 1965. And these dates that, that I'm giving are the best that we have on record. I think it corresponds to the first time that they were shown publicly, like shown to an audience. So a lot of this stuff is just footage that he's been collecting and he's you know finally edited into something and released to some kind of you know, artsy-fartsy crowd, very select venues. So when I say that Pasht is from 1965, who knows when he actually shot the footage? And this is... This is one of the the most abstract of the things that we watched. I guess some of the songs are just as abstract, but it's uh, you know a lot of blurs and blurred shapes, you know, out of focus, like flashes of color, and it's another one where it's sort of it seems like you're watching a, a dirty white leader from the beginning of a film for a while, but then things would. Well, I guess it's mostly black, a black leader from the beginning of a film, and then but then things would sort of jump out. These sort of nebulous shapes sometimes they kind of look like faces sometimes there's some some scratching in there too but uh yeah this this one definitely is that uh that closed eye seeing where you know close your eyes move your head towards the light and then move it away from the light and it's sort of that sensation yeah i agree i thought this one was interesting but bland i like the faces though i definitely saw faces in there yeah 
I like the next one, which was two Creeley and McClure. From 1965, which is like this bizarre <laughs> inverse overlay image of a man sitting and laughing, and it ends with this really wild editing of another guy sitting in a chair. Editing is the star of this one. It's just like the editing's frenetic and insane and, and really fun. But of two different types, like he, it's two two different portraits, I guess, and he uses one one set of techniques for. Well, I'm not sure which one's Creeley and which one's McClure, but the first, the first person gets a lot more time, and it's done. Um, it's sort of in the style of the dead. Like I think a lot of the techniques in in the Creeley section are just you know sort of long takes with with negatives and positives overlapped, and some interesting you know, double exposure, and and uh, you do sort of get the personality of the of the person there. He's clearly some sort of connected to academia somehow you sort of get the impression and it's just him sitting in a chair in his room and yeah it's a it's a good portrait but then he cuts to McClure and uses this that that hyperactive editing technique that he uses in other films to so it's actually a much shorter portrait just because you know he's shooting at a faster speed and he's and he's cutting so quickly and uh, you know he intercuts like shots of a lion and, and some other things and definitely inspired by the Soviets and Sergei Eisenstein and that sort of thing. Um, so he's, you know, his editing, creating meaning out of images juxtaposed with each other is, is definitely something that's on his mind. And it's here in this half of this double portrait, but it's uh, also done so quickly that you have to like really carefully watch to see everything that he's doing in it. But yeah, this is a, this is a fun little three minute film. And I'm leaving the songs for you to talk about because I don't <laughs> I don't know how to how to tackle songs one through fourteen, which is what we watch next. I don't know how to tackle this either. I kind of feel like um, <laughs> I'm I'm sort of hard pressed to even say what I, like I can sit there and tell you what happens in every song, but what this is on whole like i i don't know that i have something that's particularly enlightening for this i i, I almost uh, i probably would benefit from rewatching it but i i found the whole thing to be sort of enjoyable and, and and delicate and sweet and and gentle more so than anything he's done previously this seems to be more of a genuine reflection on on life and specifically on his life but it's pretty much incorporating every single thing that we've seen up until now so there's this sort of documentary footage of people that's edited in an interesting way or you know the sort of very hyper close-ups on nature or inverse footage or i don't like a lady in a robe a landscape just like the color green like a meditation on the color green burned out film with kids playing in like an abstract universe in a house like that sort of that's song number four which I liked. It kind of looks like it, it's like you see the, the image through the movement, like you're seeing something move out of the corner of your eye. Like it was a very cool effect. I thought that one was particularly great. More women giving birth, specifically his wife giving birth. Uh, light through the trees happens. Song number seven is the, the ocean turning sort of seasick sort of uh, image uh, images through keyholes and, and overlaid and on jags of light. Uh, neat 
<laughs> Song number eight, you have a gray mist ocean and this sort of like close-ups on red skin or crabs and bubbles and feels like it feels like breathing and, and drowning all at the same time. Song number nine, you have a kid jumping on a bed. Rhinos, the rhinos are just like, that's when you get up and cheer because you've been watching this for like an hour at this point and you're like, yeah, rhinos. <laughs> uh, you have shadowy figures uh, with like a tree, a line of trees behind them and uh, naked children and man at a desk in a dark home and shadowy outdoor adult party mixed with all of these other images of rhinoceroses and children. Song 10, you got lamps and darkness. Song 11, you have the moon. It's almost like, but it's like the moon is if you were shooting it on your iPhone. It's like barely visible, <laughs> comprehensible. It's like nothing to look at. <laughs> Song 12 is storefronts and uh, squiggle lines. Uh, very, very bright. Song 13 is flashing lights, uh, like being on a train. You can, you, you can tell he's sitting on a train and he's just recording out of the window and you see the reflection of the camera in the window and you see this. You know, like when you're in a train, you go through a, a, a tunnel or you go past a bunch of trees and everything just like kind of flickers like all, you know, life just seems like abstract and crazy. And then it ends with uh, paint spots and wild craziness. What I find most interesting about these songs is actually outside of the the uh, the finished product themselves he this is where he made the switch from 16 millimeter to 8 millimeter and well his his main reason for doing so was that somebody on some trip to new york somebody stole all of his 16 millimeter equipment and he couldn't afford to replace it and uh, i think somewhere in the back of his mind he he had this uh, you know was interested in playing around with with a smaller gauge film so he uh, he said, "Well, I'm just going to switch to eight millimeter, and and to go along with that, um, you know, this new format that he's using, which, you know, when you see it transferred on to video, especially these, the way we saw these, which I think were transferred onto VHS and then digitized, and so the image quality, it's hard to say how much difference there is between the eight millimeter and the sixteen millimeter, just because the they're of the this the transfer issues they're not considerably different like you still know you're watching the 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 guy who made uh, everything you know we, we previously watched for this episode the other interesting thing is that these are all like 3 to 5 minutes long and um he decided that 8 millimeter was cheap enough to make prints of you know duplicate ad nauseum uh, that he wanted people to to buy these films these eight millimeter films that he's produced himself and play them over and over in their in their homes like his his ideal viewing environment even for the 16 millimeter stuff like he feels felt that all of his films were, were best if you you know just privately watch them watch them yourself or with a friend and uh, in this private space and watch them over and over again at your leisure like say oh I need I want to watch I want to watch this again just so I can see that part and and how this was done so it sort of became like he had this idea that he could start selling his films like people buy record albums or or, or something and and that's what these songs were they're you know still silent they're called songs but they're silent films and they're you know, each one is sort of song length and, uh, you know, meant to be consumed like you would consume a, a seven inch single. Play, play it at your leisure, for your pleasure. 
I don't think he ever made much money that way, but he it all it also sort of focused his like he he was able to sort of create this philosophy about how his films should be viewed with these songs, and and that's it's pretty cool. I think I would have liked these better individually in some ways yeah they were meant to be seen individually i i mean i think some of these were paired up like in song two and three or were you know each he sort of restricts himself to to a couple of his patented techniques uh, in each of these songs like he doesn't there's not a whole lot of variety to each one so but uh you know he he packaged song two and three together because they're two very different sorts of things, but maybe just for length, because uh, they're they're shorter. So it's like, oh, I'll, I'll sell two and three as as a piece. But uh, yeah, these were not. We saw them all, you know, back to back to back, and that's not the way at all. They were meant to be consumed. I mean, that's how like MoMA's showing them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we skipped a bunch after fourteen. They just uh, weren't weren't too readily available. Uh, jumped right to his twenty third song uh which is one of his most famous probably after dog star man it's uh considered his his most major work it's the 23rd psalm branch psalm branch from 1967 longer than an hour it's divided into two parts and it's him trying to um it's it's a protest movie. He's protesting the Vietnam War without ever actually specifically referencing the Vietnam War. Most of what he has captured in this film, or in the first part, is a lot of newsreel footage of just war destruction and concentration camps and just the awfulness of war. Uh, it, it's most of what we get in this is is an analysis of World War II, twenty years after the fact, but in the context of don't you remember people that you know what happened 20 years ago and and presenting all of these atrocities in his film but he's also abstracting them which this i especially had kind of a problem with him taking this you know shocking footage of you know piles of dead bodies and abstracting them because it's yeah i don't even know the right word what to i just i have sort of a, a negative gut response and it's it, it feels disrespectful I, I don't even know what to call it but uh he does a, a lot of amazing things in this film too that what impressed me most about this film oh i should also say the second part is more of a travel log sort of thing he goes to to vienna and he's connecting that with where hitler was born and the second half is a bit more pastoral and more there's less hyperactive uh, cutting and uh, and he's he's got these sort of dancing dots that he uses throughout the first part that uh, he sort of calms down with a bit in the second part, but when this gets abstract, the dancing dots I love. There's there are a bunch of really great stuff in 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 this film, but when it gets too literal, like when it's too like st- sticking your face in atrocities, that's when I sort of felt like I, I wasn't exactly sure what what Stan was trying to do the problem with this one for me I'm with you because I didn't I didn't like this one because to me it just felt like it just felt boring I mean it's it's basically stock footage of other people suffering and then juxtaposed with like his naked wife again again and his naked children and a, you know like and this is the but the, really the problem I think here is the problem that I had with Dog Star Man in the sense that it is 
him taking a bunch of world universal events and making it about me, me, me. And you can't like, I understand that if you're making a protest video or movie, anything, the protest is obviously because you don't feel good about it and you are protesting. So it's not, you can't divorce the two things. Like you can't divorce the person who is protesting with the protest, but the focus in, in his editing, because it's his, because it is his editing and it's such a clear style and look that, that, just says him and projects him it takes away from the atrocities because it becomes more about him and it becomes about you know i this is how i feel when i see this and i don't care (laughs) i don't think that that's (laughs) useful and i don't think especially when you're talking about something that's like universal you can't sit there and be like well i don't like this because it makes me feel bad and and that's not good for me you know it's like don't you can't talk about universal suffering and talk about me like it just doesn't it it, you know it it takes away from the point this to me is not successful because it's just it, it it keeps pointing back to him at the end of the day and i don't i don't know it's like it's the kind of thing people complain about on twitter or whatever where it's like oh a celebrity died like I met him once and he was really awesome and I got his autograph and then I went up and told my friend and my friend said I was really cool. And it's like, no one cares. Like <laughs> we're talking about, like a man has died, you know, like, like let's talk about that, you know, or, or when some atrocity happens and someone says, Oh my God, what is this going to mean for my buying a bloody blah? I can't buy this anymore because of this atrocity in, in the other world. And it's like, it, it, it He's not being that flippant. He's not being. I don't think he's. And he's, he's. No, there's nothing. There's nothing inauthentic about this. Like the anger really comes through. This is something he feels deeply about. For but sure. it's just a but portrait the, of him at the yeah. end of the day. And and I don't. I just don't yeah. find that compelling when it's you know again it, when you're when he's using other people's footage especially it just it feels inauthentic. Even though I agree with you that the that his anger and, and his feelings are authentic. So it's like if you wanted to, if you're I think if I had come into this knowing I am going to see a portrait of how Stan Brackage feels when he thinks of war, I would have had a more positive feeling than than coming into this thinking, oh, it's going to be a protest movie. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a distinct like I know it's like a very minute, it's like minutia, but like there is a distinction between those two things. Yeah, it's the one film where I feel like he was trying to have a desired effect on the audience, and I'm not sure he succeeded at all. But enough people hold this film in such high regard that I have to I have to think it definitely works for some people. And I think a lot of his writing on this film, too, sort of helps to, and other people's writing on the film sort of helps you to put it in context and, and understand what he's trying to do with it. But just as an isolated viewing experience, it doesn't, I don't feel he succeeds in doing what it is that he's trying to do with this film. Other than, you know, where he's in the way that he succeeds with all of his films with just throwing some really cool looking stuff <laughs> into a film. And that's, I wish I could say more about Brackage than, oh, he does a lot of cool looking stuff with his movies, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to say anything more than that. Um, the Adam's, Adam Bombs looks really cool in this one. Yeah. Well, from there, I think he goes back to what he does best, which is scenes from Under Childhood, section one, 1968.
which is just pulsing color and boards of wood. And this one really, I think, nails the closed eye vision or this sort of like the brain move stuff that he's trying to do because it feels like, and this is what he was trying to do, and and, and you can tell without even knowing it going into it, but it, 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 it's a, like a baby's understanding of the world. It's pretty much the concept of memory without language. So it's like you get this world that's made of floorboards and chair legs and mom and, and siblings and it's, you know, it's peaceful and it's strange and it's blurred and it's pulsing with color and, and it's, uh, it's great. Like this, this I really liked. I think that there was, um, he really gets across like a, this, this concept of feeling everything and not knowing what it means to feel everything, having no control and no concept of having a concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then there's a long section towards the end where you get uh, a slightly older child feeding you know, baby food to the baby and like a lot of the stuff that's that's easy to recognize what's happening on the screen he tends to hold it for a bit too long so like for a while I was I really liked the scene of this two-year-old feeding this this one-year-old and you know there's a certain amount of stress that went along with it where it's like oh sh She's she's gonna choke the baby with <laughs> with that spoon and you know just watching how you know the baby stretching its head out to to eat the food um, is you know just in a in a documentary sort of way it was it was fun to watch but then he you know held it for too long for it to really make sense in the context of what he was trying to do with this film which is from a child's perspective it like it all of a sudden switches into oh, here's this stuff that I shot of, of a child feeding a child that, that I really like. So I'm just going to I'm gonna show you all of it, even if it doesn't quite fit into what I'm trying to do with this film. He followed that up um, with Eye Myth, which is actually um, a 9-second 35-millimeter experiment. I don't know. I watched it a dozen times. This is awesome. <laughs> why not? I could have watched it a dozen, dozen more times. It's a little hard to see what's happening in this nine-second strip of film. You've got you definitely have figures and uh, a, a couple of different shots, two different people. There's a guy who doesn't have a shirt on, and one is who shot a little close. I don't know. It doesn't really matter what's happening in it, but each frame of this film is is hand painted. You know, it's literally every frame of paintings. It, like you could go through this movie frame by frame, and every shot would be you know something beautiful. But to watch it projected 24 frames a second for nine seconds it's it's stunning this is also talked about as one of his his major works and to it, it's funny to like watch nine seconds of, of hand-painted film and and realize that oh I, I i understand why people are so impressed with this it's short but amazing i'm, I'm positive this is what you see before you die yeah that's what he's that's what he's trying to do. I think he, yeah, I think he tapped into a dimension that you can only access through a lot of drugs and meditation. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is easy to find and uh, watch it several times. It's another good way into brackage. Maybe, maybe we should uh, try and link some of these videos from the page so people can check them out. And then finally, we have lovemaking. Or as I called it, finally a penis. 
Several. This is just people having sex. This is, <laughs> this is, you know what this is? This is Brackage luring you in with promises of showing you people having intercourse and then just cutting to 20 minutes of dogs boning. <laughs> That's what this one is. And naked kids jumping on a bed. Yeah. It starts real strong. <laughs> I don't know. I don't uh... I would say this is the most disposable of any of the things that we watched. And this was one of the longer things, too, 30, over a half an hour. And, yeah, it's just four sections. You have heterosexual couple having sex, a bunch of dogs having sex, a gay male couple having sex, and then a bunch of naked children jumping on a bed. Probably each section is, is equal, you know, fairly equal in length. And... Each one goes on and on and on. Yeah, I don't know that I have that much to say about it other than I was genuinely thrilled to finally see a dick in one of his movies. The <laughs> I, I guess there is, I mean, to think of this as coming out in, in 68, it's pretty pretty neat. Or at least like for something that at this point in time and, you know, to have like a genuine, a thoughtful look at sex and nudity and having this sort of equal stage for both heterosexual and homosexual sex, I think I think is pretty pretty progressive and pretty neat and i think the best of your sort of art house sex film whereas sometimes i didn't think it really made sense to be seeing his naked wife <laughs> in this one i thought it made sense <laughs> yeah i didn't know i didn't i didn't get anything out of it there's a little bit of titillation here he's it feels scientific i don't know it's like i don't I, I don't even know if there was titillation i think i think to have the dogs in there for 20 minutes it's like it really feels just more like you're an observer i mean and and in and, and not even in like a a fun sexy way like you're just literally observing the act of love making and in the sort of rhythms and the movements of it and it's very not sexy you do see the two like human love making sections are very it's a lot of body parts it's very brackage in that you're often not sure what you're looking at exactly i think that cuts down on the uh whatever titillation factor that there might be in those sections and then parts two and four i you know i i can't imagine there's a there's a wide audience for uh for finding those those sections titillating but uh yeah, I guess it's scientific, but also you know something where he was able to you know have a have a tagline. It's like you know watch four different scenes of sex and nudity and having a laugh at the people who are sitting through the dogs having sex, wanting to get to the good stuff. I would hope. I that's what I hope he was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was it. So what do you feel about Brackage? We've gone on for a long time, so we've managed to say a lot more about this guy than I thought we'd be able to. Told you so. <laughs> I, I heard my lips flapping a lot, so I, I guess I guess I did have more to say, but I still don't think I've done much justice to the films themselves and, and describing what they do and how they make me feel and how I respond to them. But, you know, there's enough that we've said about Brackage himself and where he's coming from and, and uh, what what his importance was to, to filmmaking that, uh, yeah, I guess there was a bit to say. Here's the thing. I found this pursuit of this podcast, uh, you know, and all of the reading that I did was really, really fun and really cool. I had a lot of fun diving into something I really knew nothing about and, and learning it and trying to do my best to open my mind to understanding something that I'm not, I'm not inherently geared towards enjoying. 
as we mentioned. But so like some of this I loved. I like totally, absolutely five star, loved it. Great stuff. And then the stuff that I didn't love was was rough because that's the stuff that ever that's beloved. <laughs> but here's the thing is like I, I just think like I'm really mixed on his work in on whole. Because while I find him really fascinating, I I kind of see his overarching vision as being about finding your power in powerless situations, which, you know, which is what I think like ties all of his movies together. And in itself, that's it's like rooted in nature's indifference, you know, from the world that we see around us to like the bodily processes and all of that. And, And, you know, society's indifference towards those who reject it. You know, and, it, and for him, it's about control through the use of the camera and minimizing the world on film in, in order to, to both conquer it and feel connected to it. And there's a real rudimentary, like, American masculine heart to a lot of this. And I just don't connect with that. And, and that's what's kind of taking me out of, like, fully embracing the brackage world, the brackage lifestyle like even his obsession with sex and birth, it feels like it's coming from this idea that they're like trying to comprehend natural impulses and functions. And it's it's like less of a marvel in nature and more of this need to like squash it and mold it. And it's like, you know, like mysteriousness or something into something that he can control. Don't you think? Like, mm. like don't get me wrong. Like I think there is like a like a human impulse to do stuff like that. Like I think that's like a universal human impulse and so i connect with that aspect of it but it just like i have mixed emotions about you know again when it points back to him because when he's pointing back to him as being an example of universality of 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 being an example of of all of humanity and and you know he he's missing out because he's he is a he And I think that that's a really big part of it. And, and uh, you know, there's maybe something very 60s about that, is that he's presenting a, a very narrow vision on a universal truth. And you either find it authentic or you reject it because it's not the right chord to, to that woos you. And I, I think, like, both are valid. Like, I don't think, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that, like, that he, that these are bad movies or they're flawed or because of this. I, I just, it didn't, that's what didn't connect with me. Yeah, and you, um, a lot of what you're saying now is connected to what both David James, the the author of Stan Brackage, filmmaker, and Sidney, the, the the guy who wrote the text on uh, on experimental film, uh, visionary film, they they both sort of explained the levels of popularity when you're talking about avant garde film is you know it's it's all relative, it's but real. his sort of. <laughs> His fall from being a part of the conversation uh, has a lot to do with what you're saying. That's, you know, a lot of these cultural movements, the women's movement, you know, gay rights and, you know, black filmmakers and, and just, you know, all of these other sort of more societal, progressive, th- these new ways of seeing society sort of have made his, his work a little bit obsolete. People who are talking about the American avant-garde in film, you know, starting to talk about the, these these films and how they're tied to to feminism or you know different uh, you know, different movements that were happening. And Stan Brakhage just sort of got uh, got left behind there. I mean, no, neither of these authors are saying that his work got any worse or less valuable. They you know they both say, oh yeah, Stan continued to make you know brilliant films, but his white male 
heterosexual viewpoint made him of less interest to a lot of people who were in the sorts of intellectual groups that were discussing experimental film. So so you're not you're not the only one to feel that way. My issues with Brackage have to do with what you said initially about how it's just I'm not really geared this way, but on a, a purely, you know, visceral level, like just watching these these images flicker before my eyes, they they I have a response. I have a, a positive response to what I'm seeing. So I can't, you know, when I when I start to really, you know, see Stan's viewpoint coming through where it becomes clear when the image is on the screen, I can connect to actual like things in reality. That's when I get a little bit less interesting. The more abstract he makes it, the more I'm interested and the more, you know, the politics of it is sort of beside the point because that's that's the stuff that I'm not as interested in anyway. So, yeah, I'm. it was great to watch all of this stuff because I'd only seen pieces here and there of, of his stuff and it was always, you know, in groups of other you know, Michael Snow and other, you know, it, Maya Darren and all these other people, uh, Jonas Mikas, and just one of one of a number of experimental filmmakers that uh, are shown to you when you're taking film studies courses just to show you the, the variety of things that are out there. And it was great to sort of see his his work in a, in a you know, see his body of work. And especially when it was the like the stuff that people really talk about of his work. It was it was great to finally see that. And be able to say, <laughs> I don't actually have a negative response to this stuff. It's uh, it's great. You should see it. Yeah, there's definitely a real difference between sitting down in good faith and watching something like this and then seeing it in passing and knowing that it exists. <laughs> like, I don't know that I would have sat down and watched any of these if it hadn't been for this podcast quite frankly i mean other than somebody telling me like oh you have to you have to see this and you should sit down and i think that if i had seen one of these if i had seen only dog star man and nothing else i don't know that i ever would have tried any of his other nine seconds be damned i don't think i would have bothered (laughs) uh whereas when i when i committed myself to sitting down and trying to understand this and then going back and then actually engaging with the artist's own writing on it uh i was like totally fascinated by it (laughs) and i got really into it and it was actually like a really wonderful kind of breath of fresh air to just have something that was just so so different to watch and to sit there and focus on and to to meditate on i you know there's something beautiful about having a portrait of of one man like this like i don't think that there's anything you know i don't think that art is only good if it's inclusive (laughs) Mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, I, I want inclusive, I want a, an inclusive array of things to choose from. But, you know, I, I think that there's plenty to be mined from this this one man in the 60s trying to, trying to you know, tell his own story, I think is, is you know, completely valuable. Though it is, it's one man in a sea of, of many one mans who are always trying to point the camera at themselves and away from their own dicks. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, in that sense, it, it becomes a, a voice in a sea of many, but like, if you're really going to sit there and again, and say, you know what, I'm just going to sit down and, and hang out with Stan Brackage for a while. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it can disappoint if, as long as you're coming in and you're, you're with an open mind and an open heart, you know, like hmm. it really is like, it's cheesy, but it's the truth. Like it, you'll, you'll get way more out of it if you, if you accept the fact, and that's why I was trying to bring up in the beginning, it's like, I, I think it's very important to, to say that, like, this isn't pretense. Like, no, this is just 
who this person is. And if you engage with him on that level, if you accept that this is who this man is, then you can get way more out of it and you can find something that you can actually connect with as opposed to sitting there and acting like you're too too cool to to figure out, you know, oh, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Like, yeah, he's he's just making shit up. What if he isn't? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe accept that he's not making shit up and and try again, you know, like and you'll you'll realize that so many things that you thought were mysterious riddles are actually very very obvious and blatant and Right in front of your eyes. I'm not sure how my appreciation of his films line up with what his intentions were at all, but that's that's what art is supposed to be. You're supposed to experience it and take what you will from it. The author's intention is only part of what uh, what art is. And this, at the at the very least, this stuff is just taken on a purely scientific level. Like like I was saying earlier, that he he tried a bunch of stuff. He tried this so that you don't have to. And now, you know, look at his work. If you're if you're a filmmaker trying to create some kind of dream imagery in a in an unusual way, go back to Brackage and and take a look at some of the things he was doing and use some of what, you know, pay pay an homage to to Stan Brackage. And you know, he he's just like it's what he was willing to try and what he succeeded in doing is really valuable whether it means a whole lot to you or not i don't know just just watch it for on a, on a purely visual level and enjoy it that way i find i get more out of art when i come away from it even thinking this didn't mean anything to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like well huh why why didn't this mean anything to me and then finally you realize like oh that's something that's something about me i didn't know i will say it'll be a relief to get back to some crappy Hollywood movies next time. <laughs> oh, another Bond episode, right? <laughs> yeah, something along those lines. Need a breather. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.